From Yahoo Finance, this is Electionomics. I'm Rick Newman. And I'm Alexis Christophorus. Today, we are talking about what to do with your stock portfolio with the presidential election just four months away. Joining us to talk about this is veteran market strategist Mark Matson of Matson Money, an investment advisory firm with about $8.8 billion under management. Mark, uh, good to see you here on Electionomics. Thanks for being with us. Um, I guess for, you know, for a lot of investors looking ahead, to uh, to November third, they're thinking, you know, wow, which which person would be better for me in the White House, uh, President Trump or Joe Biden? What would your answer, your short answer, be to them? Yeah, <laughs> well, my short answer is uh, let's just hope Biden doesn't get in. Uh, I've had, I call this my Biden debacle. Uh, you know, I kind of separate the advice into two areas. One is the portfolio advice. And then the other is, you know, kind of living your life and how it's going to affect you economically. Uh, and the Biden plan is going to be a disaster uh, for especially from the tax standpoint. He wants to completely get, uh, do away with the tax benefits for companies, he wants to go from 21 back to 28. He wants to take the maximum rate from 37 back to 39.6. Uh, he wants to eliminate capital gains, which is a 20% tax to a up to a 40% tax for certain taxpayers. Uh, the average you know, American's gonna have a massive tax increase, uh, which will hurt the economy, reduce GDP uh, by an estimated 1.5%. So economically, uh, Biden is a typical tax and spend Democrat uh, with a generous portion of rhetoric for redistributing wealth. Um, and uh, I think it's bad overall for the economy. Now, as far as the market's concerned, the market's a little different because the market has expectations already boiled into the prices. So all the knowable and predictable information is already into the price today. So I always recommend people don't try to play chicken with the market based on who you think is going to be the president, uh, because that's largely baked into the price of the, the securities already. Um, Long-term equities are the greatest wealth creation tool on the planet. But you could, as a you know, an American paying taxes, you could get hurt pretty severely, provided you still have a job when he gets if he gets elected. Hey, Mark, let me let me push back on some of those thoughts. Um, sure. So uh, when Obama was president, the, ta the top corporate rate was thirty five percent. Trump cut it to twenty one percent. The top income tax rate was thirty nine point six percent. So Biden doesn't want to put the corporate rate back to thirty five. He, he's talking about just putting it up to twenty eight. And of course, that's that's not the effective rate companies will actually pay. That's just the nominal rate. So for typical companies, the uh, tax rate would probably go up, a, the thing you, the tax rate you actually pay, go up a couple points and still be uh, lower than during the Obama years. And the stock market went up during almost all of Obama's two terms. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is it's gonna cost jobs. That's why I separate what the market does from what the actual economy does. Uh, it's, it's very possible, if you look at recessions, take all the recessions we've ever had. Uh, on average, the market actually goes up during a recession because the recession's already priced in before the recession starts. So those are two different, very thing, two very different things. But if we raise the corporate tax rate up, it's gonna cost jobs. Look, we're already in a job disaster. We got 50 million people that are out of work from the COVID. So, you know, you exacerbate that by raising taxes when Trump, before the COVID started, we were at an all-time low, 50-year low at 3.5% unemployment. Uh, that's a result of tax uh, cuts across the board, reduction of red tape, 
uh, pro-business economy, the oil and gas industry taking back off, uh, which no one thought was possible, and the return to manufacturing jobs. Look, you don't live in a vacuum. You raise your income taxes. Companies will go to countries and create, build their products, whether it's a cell phone or Nike shoes. Uh, they're going to go to third world countries or China's socialist company, communist country to build them. So it hurts Americans. So, what, 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 so to what extent will the market care? I don't know that the market will care. The market, all that knowable information is already priced into the price today. I think as far as a good uh, portfolio construction is concerned, you don't only, only want investments here in the United States. You want to diversify your portfolio so that you are in these foreign countries because no one knows in advance which country is going to benefit from uh, the randomness of the market. Uh, it's, if you look at markets historically over the last 10 years, U.S. equities have beat international equities, but you want to have both and then rebalance based on which one's higher or lower, uh, including emerging markets, uh, Europe, Asia, uh, Australia. So you want to be fully diversified. We have actual companies in over 80 individual countries. Uh, but the, the freer the market, the lower the taxes, the lower the friction, the economy does better. So we were talking a moment ago about Biden's tax plan and how you believe that's bad news for job creation. Right now, we've got double digit unemployment. It's expected to stay with us at least through the end of the year. And Congress is going to have to decide whether or not to throw more stimulus at this, uh, namely that controversial $600 more a week in unemployment for a lot of Americans. That's about to expire. Uh, is the answer to your mind, Mark, re-upping all of that, at least to get us through this really tough time? Well, it is really tough time. And a lot of Americans, you look, you, they lost their jobs. Uh, they're running out of their savings. Uh, their mortgages are coming due. Banks aren't just going to sit there and just forgive them their mortgages forever. Uh, some of them could end up losing their houses, could affect the real estate market. Uh, I, think, I think if this, the, the extreme draconian response to COVID goes on and on and on, the longer it goes on, the more of real structural unemployment that we get. Uh, the slower the market will be able to, and the economy will be able to rebound. Uh, and the more Americans that are going to lose touch with their American dream. You have a lot of entrepreneurs and people that have worked their whole lives. At the same time that this is all going on, their 401ks are going down, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50%. Many people panicked at the bottom, thinking it's going to go another 40%. And even though the market's recovered, many people haven't participate, participated in the recovery. Uh, so to, you know, to answer your question, uh, it's th this, this failure to believe in the American dream, free enterprise, innovation, technology, free markets, uh, has hurt a lot of people. Mark, let me just pin you down on just go, to go back to the market for a moment and the sure. political context. So we spend a lot of time at Yahoo Finance these days talking about the disconnect between the stock market and the real economy. Uh, and every now and then we have a guest on who says, well, uh, the market has not yet priced in a Joe Biden presidency. And I, I kind of like scratch my head and say the market really doesn't seem to be pricing in anything except the Federal Reserve is inflating asset prices. And the Fed is basically saying we're, we're here for the market. They're not saying that overtly, but that's obviously the point. And so how does the market price in anything uh, with with the, you know, with the Powell put, as they call it? So. Um, will the market ever price in uh, the election or is it just going to be, you know, smooth sailing as long as the Fed is there as a backstop? 
Yeah, wow, that's a lot. Uh, so, so first of all, the market is extremely efficient. It prices in all of the knowable and predictable information about the future, uh, but it also prices in unknowable information. Uh, think people's plans. Am I going to sell my, my uh, stock and then buy a house in Boca? Uh, am I, and I plan on retiring early. Um, you know, do I like one company over another? So it prices in all knowable and predictable information. It also prices in unreasonable, irrational biases from human beings. And that's going on all the time. So the market price is closest to the perceived real price long term. So to try to predict what's going to happen to the market in the short term uh, is, is impossible. Uh, markets are random and unpredictable. Now, versus, relative to the Fed, the Fed has a hard time controlling even interest rates. If you really look at Dr. Uh, Fama from the University of Chicago, Nobel Prize winner in a famous paper, uh, asked, does the Fed control the, the interest rate? And long story to a very long paper is only a little bit, maybe around the edges. It only has about 3% of the power to control interest rates. If you look globally around the world, uh, different Feds, different central banks have uh, pursued widely different uh, uh, strategies relative to currency. But if you look globally, interest rates are fairly consistent, uh, which points to supply and demand sets the interest rates. The Fed almost has to follow the supply and demand, not the other way around. And if the Fed can't really control interest rates, it sure can't, which is the market it's closest to, it sure can't control the market. Uh, it tries to control the market at times, but there are literally trillions of bits of information that control market prices, including the consumers, what they buy, pandemics, weather, wars, recessions. Uh, trying to predict the market is probably one of the most arrogant things. Well, what that if, what, people what try. if investors think the Fed is trying to control the market? I mean, isn't that a form of control in itself? Yeah, but it's such a small piece of all the trillions of pieces of information that go into it. Uh, let's face it, if the Fed was the only thing that controlled the market, it would never go anything but up. Uh, there are just many, many factors that control the markets. Okay, so let's say that's true. Do you expect the market to react as we get closer to the election in November? Are investors going to say, holy, holy crap, Biden's ahead by 10 points and he wants to raise all these taxes. Uh, that means stocks are overvalued. Do you expect something like that or no? Uh, no, I expect I, I expect markets to do what they always do, which is completely be unpredictable and random in the short run. You know, look, if there was anyone on the whole planet that could consistently and predictably tell you what stocks are going to do in the short run, you'd have one guest and they just come on the morning in the first five minutes, tell you exactly what was going to happen. You wouldn't even have a show to do. Uh, no, obvious low money has that has that type of clairvoyance. Uh, you know, we don't believe people when they call the psychic network hotline, but for some reason we believe people when they try to tell us they know what's going to happen to the market next. If they knew what was going to have the market next, they would not come on your show and tell you this is exactly what's going to happen to the market. They would keep all that information to themselves as personal capital and extort massive premiums unrelated to risk. So the challenge for investors, and this is a big challenge, is to deal with uncertainty and chaos and randomness in the short run, given that equities are the greatest wealth creation on the planet. Large U.S. stocks on average over long periods of time at 10%, small stocks at another 2% over that, around 12%, and value stocks around 14%. 
So building diversified portfolios of thousands of companies, staying disciplined no matter what happens in the market. Uh, we also did a study on uh, over the last 80 years since we have market data going back, if you had a Republican president or Democrat president, uh, did that give you anything informative about what, what the market was going to do? We found zero correlation. We looked at uh, Republican Congresses versus Senate Congress, no correlation. We looked at the Senate, uh, and you can find no correlation between who's actually in the market, who's the head of the government, and what the equities actually do. Um, all these things that people think have a correlation, you actually have to do the numbers and crunch them and see if there is a real correlation. Mainly, you find it's random. All right, so you're talking long-term, long, long-term investing, which most of us do do. But if you're looking at the shorter term, um, over a two-year period, the market does better following a Republican win than a Democratic uh, presidential win. So you as an advisor um, to high net worth individuals, you have to be a little clairvoyant, right? You can't be reactionary all the time. It's important to be defensive and to sort of look ahead and position. How are you positioning their money right now as we move closer to this election at least let's talk for the shorter term are there sectors you're you know piling into other areas you're just staying away from well most most investors don't use an academic methodology to invest their money so if you actually looked at academics uh several things pop out right away number one is there's a massive equity premium over fixed income of about seven percent per year but if you look at what most investors have done over the last four months, it's panic, sell stocks, go into fixed income, or set on, on cash. That is disastrous for a long-term investment strategy. Because one thing I can tell you, I can predict, is that human nature always calls for hurting. Hurting's great for zebra, bad for human beings when it comes to investing, because everybody wants to do the exact same thing at the exact same time, and they go to the cocktail parties and golf, and they want to brag about what they have. Everybody does the exact same thing. And that's how you end up with massive bubbles like the gold bubble, the tech bubble, the real estate bubble, um, everybody following each other over the cliff. So what we're doing is building diversified global portfolios and forcing ourselves to buy or sell whatever asset category is down. Marcus, Easy to talk about, uh, tough to do. Quick tactical investing question. How often should an ordinary investor rebalance quarterly? It's a great question. We, we look at ours at a global perspective, at least, at least quarterly, but we set percentages. So we have a balanced threshold for most investors of 5%. So if, if the equity market runs way up, it's 5% over its target. You end up with a rebalancing, selling off the fixed income, excuse me, selling off the equities, rebalancing the fixed income. Uh, but people also take money in and out of their portfolios. That's also a time that you have to rebalance. Uh, you have to rebalance uh, based on whether fixed income takes off. So on average, if, for most investors trying to do it themselves, which I wouldn't recommend, to get, I'd recommend against, because the rules are like a diet. The rules are easy to talk about, right? On a diet, you eat less, you move more. Very hard to do. In rebalancing, you globally diversify, use high-quality fixed income to offset risk. You rebalance on the highs and lows. But just like a diet, the rules are almost impossible. I've met very few people over 30 years that can force themselves to do it. Can I ask you, uh, let's talk about this recession we're in. Um, recessions um, realign things, and uh, we don't just go back to the way we were before after recessions mm -hmm. anymore. 
Um, and, and some of the changes, uh, you know, uh, public attitudes change. Uh, we may be seeing a shift in uh, attitudes toward uh, more government intervention in certain things, such as healthcare, as people lose their healthcare because they lose their job, for example. So um, what could, just in, in a broad sense, what kind of shifts do you think are occurring in this recession? What's this economy going to look like, let's say, in two years when the dust has settled? <clears throat> Great question. Uh, one of the things that people are, have been saying a lot is we're all in this together. And it's, it's a nice sentiment. Uh, but the reality is, economically, it's just not real. Uh, there are clear winners and clear losers. Uh, you look at in Arizona, the state that I'm in, uh, the Mountain View, uh, has, Mountain View Fitness has over 1,300 employees. They've been totally shut down by the government. Uh, they're hurting. They, I don't know what will happen to them financially, but you got people unemployed. you got people in destruction, and they can't function and operate their business. On the other hand, right down the street, you have Talking Stick uh, Arena or Talking Stick Casino, and you can gamble your life away and smoke cigarettes all day without a mask and get drunk on you know whiskey. So it's just crazy. It's and you got these big box stores like Costco, and then you've got you know, all the internet comp com companies that are doing really well. You've got this supposed vaccine they're working on that I'm sure they'll charge billions, if not trillions, to to give to, to people. So it, it's creating, you know, a lot of times politicians talk about, uh, you know, the divergence of the poor versus the very, very rich. It's definitely causing a divergence, causing some companies are having massive, massive gains from this uh, terrible, terrible situation. Uh, and as far as being on the same team, I, I bet you when they come up with the vaccine, which I hope they do, uh, you think they'll share the profits of the vaccine with everybody? I doubt it. So who do you think the, who do you think the losers are here? I mean, we know we kind of know who the winners are. I mean, it's tech, uh, which has been the winner uh, forever. Um, who's on the losing side here? I, I think there'll be winners in every industry. Uh, you know, bad markets flush the chumps. You have a lot. I just noticed just driving down you know the roads where I live here in Arizona, and you'll see this restaurant went under, this company went under, this gym went under. The companies that were marginal and really weren't making a lot of money had very thin margins, they're already disappearing. And I think they're disappearing in every industry. Uh, but it's the companies that were stronger that are finding a way through this. Uh, for example, we do a lot of our training live in, in person um, and uh, group training for, with investors and advisors. We've had to completely switch to Zoom, but we've had some of our highest uh, uh, events that we've ever had with over 8,000 participants uh, in, a, in a Zoom event or a live stream event. So it's the companies that stay focused, work really hard through this, this travesty, this very difficult, uncertain time uh, that will have massive market share when the economy does come back. You know, speaking of bad markets flushing the chumps, which I like that quote, um, we saw retail. I mean, it was it was hurting before the pandemic, and now those that were weak are not surviving, right? You got J. Crew and JCPenney um, going bankrupt, Macy's cutting thousands of jobs, yeah, Neiman um, Marcus know them perhaps going away. This means thousands and thousands of jobs to Mark. So I want to get back to that stimulus question for a moment, because as much as more stimulus is going to mean we balloon this deficit even more, is this just something we have to do right now? Because if consumer spending, it's already dried up so much, if it dries up any more, how do we have any chance of getting out of this recession? Well, uh, Dr. Art Laffer on our academic board is uh, famous of saying that 
you know, uh, deficit spending is a form of a tax. And taxes always have to be paid in the end. Uh, it'll either be paid, it could be paid by inflation. I know we don't have it right now, but I remember the 70s. We were looking at 13, 14% inflation. Uh, that would be devastating to the American public. Uh, you're looking at uh, real unemployment. Uh, you're looking at inflation making the, the value of things go down. This massive deficit is probably going to create additional taxes as we go forward. And giving out money to people not to work is not an incentive. In fact, it disincentivizes them to actually work, and incentives are important. Uh, we've done a lot of stimulus. I don't think the stimulus is going to do anything, really. I think there's two things that have to happen. People got to go back to work. They got to do it. And then we got to open up the schools. Children have to go back to school. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and they keep asking me, Daddy, I miss my friends. Daddy, I want to learn. Daddy, I want to go back to class. Daddy. You know, they did this remote learning, and it was terrible for the kids uh, uh, last year uh, in school. Um, it was, so I, I think we're, and I think the way to handle COVID uh, is individual responsibility. If you're afraid of COVID and you don't want to catch it, stay in your house. If you think masks work, wear a mask. Uh, I mean, where does individual responsibility work? This is the first time in history we forced healthy people, healthy people to wear masks. It's never happened, ever. But Mark, uh, let me jump in there and ask, yeah. I mean, is, is the fact that we don't have, you know, sort of a federal mandate, that it's sort of a, a really willy-nilly, uh, state by state, there are different rules about how to handle COVID. And now we're seeing spikes in other parts of the country. There's a fear it's just going to come back around. New York, which is doing okay now, might get hit again. Shouldn't there be, uh, you know, speaking of President Trump and the way he's handled COVID, shouldn't there be a federal response? So at least it's a uniform response across the board, state by state. Well, you know, I think that the, you know, I'm sure if he was actual a king, I'm sure he would dictate a, a a nationwide response. <laughs> the problem is it's up to the governors. It's not, it's not his job to dictate a response to all the states. Uh, the governments have the, the governors and the mayors have the power and he doesn't, and he doesn't have it. Uh, so he can make recommendations. He can do funding. He can try to push things certain ways, but ultimately it comes down to the government. I think a lot of these governors are usurping power that doesn't really belong to them. We're supposed to have freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of owning our own property. When you tell an entrepreneur he or she can't go to work and run their business, in effect, you've confiscated their uh, property. And in the states that have really been draconian and locked people in their houses, it's a form of house arrest. And I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that these are massive freedoms that they're giving up. And, you know, this thing... It, it's so bog, mind-boggling. It's not even really about lives. Look, 9 million people a year, 9 million die from starvation. That's 24,000 people per day. Most of them are children. And, we, and I'm not saying we don't do anything, but where's the death clock for the children dying of hunger? And hunger is 100% treatable, 100% curable. For about only $160 a year, you can save a life. So we're focusing on this created problem. And I'll leave it up to viewers or you to decide how much of it is manufactured and how much of it is real. But we have problems that make this problem look like nothing. But we're spending no time, no money, no effort 
on what we could be doing, which is saving millions and millions and millions of lives because we're focused on this one issue. And so I think it's, it's wasteful. It's destructive. We're $6 trillion in debt over it already. And if we wanted to actually save lives, we would have spent it a completely different way. You guys got into, you guys delved into the politics of the COVID response at exactly the right time, which is at almost at the end of the show. <laughs> we can go on and do this more and more. We're going to have to bring you back though, Mark. Thanks for those. Those are uh, interesting insights. I don't know about, you know, hunger and COVID being apples to apples, but I, I hear you. And thanks a but lot. for. You only have so many resources. You got to put them where they make the most difference. I hear you. Mark Matson of Matson Money. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks to all of you. Be sure to rate and review what you just heard and uh, follow me at Alexis TV News on Twitter. Rick? And me at Rick J. Newman. And Mark, do you want to put a social media account out there? Yeah, I got Mark Matson one on uh, uh, Instagram. And then uh, also you can just Google, uh, you can look me up on Facebook. They're going to start flooding you, Mark. Look out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Very spirited conversation. I love it. Thanks, guys. Thanks. See you all next time.